Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. Enable, why don't you stand? We're going to read God's word together. First, from Isaiah, prophecy about the Christ. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one whom men hide their face, he was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he bore our griefs, he carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. 2 Corinthians, God made Christ who had no sin to be sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then from Mark's gospel, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads saying, ah, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Save yourself, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lamaka sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus uttered a loud cry, and he breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. But when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, This man was the Son of God. This is the reading of God's Word. And every bit of it is true. And He gives it to us because He loves us. Amen. You may be seated. All right, do you see it? Do you see the cross? You know, there are some things in life that you actually, you see them so often that you really don't see them anymore. Does the cross move you anymore? How do you see the cross? You know, we see the cross as a symbol of Christianity. We see it on churches and in churches, 
We see the cross on tombstones. We see the cross as a thing of beauty. It is probably the most common worn piece of jewelry. Crosses as necklaces, crosses as earrings, crosses on bracelets, crosses as tattoos. But how did the ancient world see the cross? If if a person from the ancient world saw you with a cross around your neck, they would be shocked. They would call you a fool. They would mock you. They would dismiss you as an idiot. It would be like wearing uh, an electric chair used for execution around your neck or a hangman's noose. But even that does not get at how appalled they would be. In the ancient world, it was the lowest form of degradation. Cultured Gentiles actually refrained from even using the word cross. The Old Testament says to be hung on a cross was to be cursed by God. The Jews were disgusted by it. The Gentiles called it foolishness. Every gospel account that we read, we have people mocking him because he was on a cross. And so scandalous and outrageous and appalling this was that our earliest depiction of Jesus on a cross is, comes to us in the form of graffiti that was mocking him. Here is a pencil sketch of it. The original is kind of hard to make out on the screen. And you see that Jesus is on a cross depicted with a donkey head. And there's a man there who is worshiping. It says, Alex Minios worships his God. This is the highest form of mockery. I mean, for us, we cringe to think of our Jesus with a donkey head. But still, even that does not get at the horror of what the cross really is. So how do we see the cross? Martin Luther said the cross alone is our theology. The whole of Christianity can be understood by grasping, seeing, and beholding Jesus on the cross. So take your sermon outline, let's look at this together. First, we need to behold the paradox, the paradox. Now, every parent and grandparent knows that you try to teach your kids to have good manners at church, right? So, you know, don't run when you're not supposed to, don't wipe your nose on your sleeve, Don't be burping in church. You go to the bathroom, please, before church starts. You know, don't run over uh, old people, all those kinds of things. But you know adults, adults should have good manners at church too. You know, you should listen to other people or at least act like you do, you know. And, and, And don't push in the donut line, all right? And when you get out in the parking lot, you know, restrain from those people who cut you off. You know, just have good manners, be nice. Well, today, 
Today, we are going to part from manners. We're going to talk about something that's disgusting. We're going to talk about something that will make your stomach turn. Something that will push your emotions to the limit. Something that's beyond the boundaries of head-shaking disgust. I'm going to tell you something that's obscene. And this isn't, uh, you know, this isn't a dramatic attempt to hold your attention. You really should be on edge because it's raw obscenity. It's Jesus. The Bible tells us that Jesus became sin. It's true that he paid for your sins. That's the legal part. But the shocking depth of it is that he became sin. You know, a person can uh, pay your traffic ticket for you. But they don't get credit on their record for your foolishness. Jesus was not corrupted by our sin. The thief on the cross was right. This man has done nothing wrong. Jesus retained his righteousness. He did not become evil, but he did become sin guilty, taking on our transgressions, all the brokenness of the world, and thereby worthy of punishment, pain, disgust, and rejection. You know, we might, uh, we might struggle to define the word obscene, but we know it when we see it. We know it when we hear it because emotionally we're turned over. We, we walk away, we push it away, we walk away from it, we cover our eyes, we cover our children's eyes, we pull away. But you must not move away from what I'm saying. You must move towards it because if you do not see it, then you will die in it. In 2005, I met a young man who had just returned home from the war in Iraq. He was an army chaplain. And I was really curious about his experience. He was a chaplain, I'm a pastor. And he was reluctant to give me much detail. But his boss, who was a friend of mine, told me more and told me enough of his story to horrify me. This chaplain's job was to collect the dead and notify the families and either bury them or ship the dead home. He told me that every night this army chaplain would sleep with the dead bodies. Imagine being in a room where you're the only person breathing. This chaplain did hundreds of memorial services of those killed in the line of duty. I mean, his eyes showed a weariness and a sorrow I've never seen before. He saw the grotesque horrors of war, the evil, the brokenness, the bizarre obscenities of war. He slept with it. He wept over it. He was surrounded by it day and night. But he did not become it. Jesus did. 
every evil, every disease, every death, every sadness, every tear, every torment, every word of hatred, everything shameful, every whore and cry, every bit of arrogance and self-righteousness and snubbing other people, killing words, killing bullets, the entire culmination of the history of human evil and sin, past and present, he became sin. He bore it. R.C. Sproul says this, once Jesus volunteered to become the Lamb of God, laden with our sin, then he became the most grotesque and vile thing on this planet. With the concentrated load of sin he carried, he became utterly repugnant to the Father. And God poured out his wrath on this obscene thing. Now, Johnny Erickson Tata takes this truth and she writes this dramatic narrative. Human wickedness crawled upon and into his spotless being. The apple of the heavenly father's eye is turned brown with the rot of sin. The father rouses himself like a lion disturbed, shakes his mane and roars against the shriveling remnant of a man on a cross. Never has the son seen the father look at him so. Never felt even the least of hot breath. But the roar shakes the unseen world and darkens the visible sky. The son does not recognize these eyes. Son of man, why have you behaved so? You've cheated, lusted, stolen, gossiped, murdered, envied, hated, and lied. You have cursed, robbed, overspent, overeaten, fornicated, disobeyed, embezzled, and blasphemed. Oh, the duties that you have shirked, the children that you have abandoned. Why have you ever so, who has ever so ignored the poor, so played the coward? So belittled my name. Have you ever held your razor tongue? What a self-righteous, pitiful drunk you who peddles, drugs, travels in cliques and mocks your parents. Does the list never end? Splitting families, raping virgins, acting smugly, playing the pimp, buying off politicians, practicing extortion, filming pornography, accepting bribes? You have burned down buildings. You've perfected terrorist tactics, founded false religions, traded in slaves, and you relished each morsel and you bragged about it? I hate, I loathe these things in you. Disgust, for everything about you consumes me. You will feel my wrath. The father stands and watches as his heart's desire, the mere image of himself, sinks down into raw, liquid sin. And Jehovah's stored rage against humankind from every century explodes into a single direction. My God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? But heaven stops its ears and the sun stares up at the one who cannot, who will not reply. And the father turned away and rejected the son whom he loved. He became sin. He became you. And you must see this. You must behold this. You need to be shaken by it. Otherwise, you will not be beholding Jesus on the cross. The obscenity, but also the paradox, the beauty. The cross alone is our theology. It is the central beauty of the Christian faith. On the cross, we see displayed the glory, the wisdom, the righteousness, the holiness, the fullness of the majesty of God. The power of God, all his majesty, all of his holiness, all of his beauty is seen there for us on the cross. Yet, it's not what you would expect. Would you have ever thought that a man dying on the cross would be the definition of love? That's what 1 John says. 1 John says, by this, we know love. We know love that he laid down his life for us. Would you have ever expected to look at the miscarriage of justice that his trial was and his execution, that that would actually be, in the purest form, a display of God's full justice? And would you ever have thought that God Almighty, in all of his power and all of his glory, would choose to show the fullness of his power on the cross. Nailed to the cross between two common criminals. I mean, there's, there's nothing that seems at all powerful about a man in the throes of death. Yet, hanging there, Jesus was crushing the head of the serpent. He was tying up the strong man. He was driving out the prince of darkness. He was destroying death itself, triumphant over all the spiritual powers, putting them all to shame. You know, on the cross, we see pure, true, full power used how it should be to bless others. This is what Torrance says. The cross, with all of its incredible meekness and patience and compassion, is no deed of passive and heroism simply, but the most potent and aggressive deed that heaven and earth have ever known. The attack of God's holy love upon the inhumanity of man 
the tyranny of evil upon all the piled up contradictions of sin. But if the cross is beautiful, then to whom is it beautiful? You know, the cross is actually very offensive to other world religions. Paul tells us that the, the cross is offensive. And we just said that God poured out the fullness of his anger and his wrath on Jesus as a vile thing. But here's the paradox of all paradoxes. God deeply and joyfully approved of what the Son did in that hour on the cross. In fact, God the Father, God the Son planned it from eternity past. The cross was Jesus' crowning act of obedience and love. I mean, Paul says this amazing thing. He says, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. A fragrant offering, a, a beautiful aroma to God. You know, you look at a rose, and a rose is beautiful to look at. It's captivating, but it also gives a fragrance. This is the meaning of Christ crucified. It was a full sensory experience of beauty for the Father. It's also beautiful to us, but a paradox. Richard Sibbs says this, Christ was never more lovely to his church when he was most deformed for his church. When Jesus was the most physically appalling, like one whom men would hide their face, he is most lovely to his church. He took our ugliness that we might have his loveliness. You know, we died in him. Jesus paid for our sins, but there's more to it than that. We actually died in him. Our death is in his death, and his beauty becomes our beauty. So behold God's word to you. God made Christ, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, the beauty of who Christ is to him. So that's beholding the paradox. And the second, we want to behold the cry. In Mark 15, we see and we hear the mockers, don't we? I love how Mark puts it, that those who pass by hurled insults at him, throwing mockery at him. It says that, that the religious people uh, shouted at him, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down for the cross that we may see and believe. This is, this is the kind of mockery that says this, hey Jesus, you were a pretty big talker. Yeah, lots of people liked you. But look at you now, you're a pitiful Messiah. We know that the Roman soldiers bound him and whipped him and, and then they put a crown of thorns on him and they blindfolded him. And as they blindfolded him, they would come up one at a time and just punch him in the face 
over and over again. And they tell him, hey, king of the Jews, prophesy. <laughs> tell us just who hit you in the face. And so with all of that picture, everyone giving those kind of venue, uh, pictures of the cross, we have this unbelievable, almost unexplainable, shocking centurion. The centurion who's standing and facing Jesus says, surely this man was the son of God. So why did this Rome, what did this, what did this Roman centurion see that others did not? What caused him to make this confession, to give this proclamation? And why is it so important? Well, in Mark's gospel, up to this point, no human has figured this out. The disciples saw and heard all that Jesus did, what he taught, and the disciples called him the Christ, but in the prevailing culture, that did not mean they were calling him divine. And all of Jesus' teachings and all of his miracles and everything that he was doing, and even what he said, was to show people that he was, in fact, divine. He was, in fact, God. But people in Mark's gospel keep saying this. Who is this man? Who is he? Well, even the winds and the waves obey him. Only the centurion, at the end of the gospel, he's the only one who gets it. And this is crazy because he's Roman. You know, Romans, every Roman coin, every Roman coin had inscribed on it, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. So if you're a loyal Roman person, the only person that you would call son of God would be Caesar. Yet, this centurion gives that title to Jesus. And Roman centurions were, were men of hard character. They were not aristocrats who were given military commission. No, they were men who rose up through the ranks because of their brutality, their toughness, and their ability to do the hard things. So this man would have been brutal. He would have seen lots of death. He would have inflicted death. He would have seen many people die. So here is this hardened, brutal man, yet something penetrates his darkness and opens his eyes to call Jesus What was it? He heard Jesus' cry and he saw him breathe his last. He saw the way Jesus died. And with all the people that he had seen die, he had never seen anybody die like this. The centurion would have heard Jesus say on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He would have heard him say, I thirst. He would have heard him 
talked to the two criminals on each side, telling one of them that they would be with him today in paradise. He would have seen that interaction that John mentions between Jesus and his mother. And he would have heard Jesus cry out to Telestai, it is finished. But he also heard him cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At this point, Mark's, in his gospel, Mark is, is, is trying to press it right up to your ear. My God, my God. Those are the words of personal intimacy between Jesus and the Father. That's what he heard. This intimate relationship being expressed. It'd be like me saying, my Ann, my Sashi, my Sam, my Sarah. The centurion saw this intimacy in the cry. And if you listen closely to this cry, you will see the same compassion and tenderness. If you see Jesus losing his infinite love of the Father out of infinite love for you, it can melt your hardness. No matter who you are, it can open your eyes and shatter your darkness. It can help you break the things in your life that so dominate you, like over-concern for your reputation, overworking, drinking too much, eating too much, sorrow and failure that controls you. It can liberate you and cause you to draw near to the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not a rhetorical question. There's an actual answer to the question. There's an answer to be given. There's an answer to be heard. Why is he forsaken? For you. For you. That's the answer that is to be put in there. The judgment that should have fallen on you fell on Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because your condemnation has already happened. Now, as powerful as this truth is, you have to have your eyes opened to behold the beauty of the cross, to see him there for you, to behold the beauty to the point that it actually becomes deeply intimate for you, deeply personal for you. Look at this picture. This is a movie poster, movie that was made in 2008 called Seven Pounds with uh, Will Smith. It's a fictional story about a man named Ben Thomas Actually, it's, he, he takes his brother's name, Ben Thomas, and Will Smith uses his brother's IRS credentials to get to know seven people who are desperately in need. A person who has kidney failure, blindness, abusive home, lung disease, heart failure. 
And Ben wants to redeem his own life, but also the life of seven people who are in desperate need. Two of them, Ezra, a blind man, and Emily, a woman who needs a heart transplant. Ben becomes very close to them in the process. In fact, he and Emily fall in love. But Emily is dying of heart failure. So Ben gets things in order, and he takes his own life in such a way to preserve his vital organs. He makes arrangements for all of them. His kidneys are to go to a teenager who is dying. His lungs go to a dying man. His eyes go to Ezra. His heart becomes Emily. His life, seven pounds of vital organs to rescue and heal his new friends. And in the final scene of the movie, Emily is healed. She has a scar on her chest. She has Ben's heart beating in her. But that's not enough for her. She has to see once again the eyes of her Redeemer. So watch this final scene as Emily meets Ezra, the man with Ben's eyes. Good job. Good job. Ezra. Yeah. Hi. Are, are you a parent? Have we met? You okay? So Emily and Ezra both needed to see, to behold. Emily needed to see those eyes. Ezra needed to see the scar. And so do you. You need to behold Jesus and behold his scars. You need to behold Jesus and his loving eyes on you. Behold the cross, the wonderful, wonderful cross.
Amen. Father, it is seemingly impossible to imagine that you could turn something so ugly, so grotesque and vile into something so utterly beautiful, so utterly lovely. And we're just talking about us. But the cross is the central beauty of everything we need to know. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org.